This is the World Bank's Infrastructure Podcast. In today's episode, we discuss the buildup of household utility debt during the pandemic and financial solutions moving forward. Don't forget to listen to the key messages at the end. Countries around the world saw a drop in electricity demand in 2020 as businesses shut down during health crises and lockdowns. Household energy needs, however, increased at the same time as people were spending more time at home, whether working, studying, or even at leisure. Overall electricity demand has been recovering at different paces around the world, reports the International Energy Agency. The decline in demand for electricity during the phases of the pandemic meant that utilities' revenues took a negative hit. At the same time, people lost their jobs and some were unable to pay electricity bills that they had paid before. Many are still without jobs. And governments around the world have required companies to maintain service to all customers, even if they were unable to pay, granting moratoria on this debt. Yet utilities do need to pay their creditors, maintain infrastructure, and invest for the future. Let's find out how to deal with all this debt. Good morning and welcome. I am Rumin Islam, host of Tell Me How, and today we have with us Mark Wolf, who is the director of the National Energy Assistance Directors Association. Mark will be talking to us about electric utility debt today and sharing ideas about how to resolve the post-COVID debt overhang in this sector. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, before we get into any of the details, the first question I'm going to ask you is, how big actually is this problem? How big is the stock of unpaid debt to electric utilities? We think it's almost tripled from what it was of pre-pandemic times. We track residential debt very closely across the country. We don't track small business debt, but we do get that data as well sometimes. And it looks like it's following residential patterns. Compared to pre-pandemic, which say the end of 2019, there was about $8 billion of residential debt outstanding. That's grown to about $24 billion since then. A few months ago, when we did an earlier estimate, we thought it might grow as high as $30 billion by this point, but it hasn't because of all the stimulus money that's been put out. The federal government has done a lot to provide additional funding to families and unemployment insurance and unemployment payments have been continued. So the amount of residential debt is not as high as we thought it would be. So people are actually using their stimulus payments to pay back debt. And I know that there was a moratorium, at least in some states, right, on on your consumer electricity uh, payments, right? Is that still in effect? The moratoriums are expiring. About half the states right now have, have moratoriums. About three months ago, close to all the states had some form of moratorium in place. Some moratoriums are flat out across the board. Nobody gets shut off. That's still the case in New York and California. Other moratoriums were temperature-based. And some were temporary in that, in fact, they ended. So as of the end of April, only about 10 stays will have moratoriums in place. So it is declining quickly, and we're concerned about that. We're concerned about families who, in spite of all the federal resources that are in place, still don't have enough to pay their bills. So I think this is very interesting that there's so much 
variation across the states because we see this kind of variation across all our client countries. And there are different types of moratoria, there are different lengths, and then um, there are different rates at which consumers are paying back their, their debt as well. Now, do you see differences in terms of certain states being in worse situations than others? And is this sort of related to how well economically the state is doing overall? It's a number of things. So like other countries, if you think of the states as 50 states, the amount owed and the percent of families in debt reflect both the overall economy in that state, the strength of the unemployment insurance program, how easy it is to sign up. That's a major thing. Some states are much more organized than others. And then third, what protections were in place prior to the pandemic? So prior to the pandemic, states like Massachusetts and Connecticut had discount programs for low-income families. They had supplemental funding. Some states have something called percent of income payment plan, so that the amount you pay on your energy bill is a function of your income. In a few states, for example, you won't pay more than 6 or 7% of your income. It's capped. That's the maximum you can pay. So in those states, you're seeing lower amounts of families being in arrears just because the state has already taken some of the money off the table. Other states that have weaker programs in place, the situation is far worse. And also the states that didn't have, that are much smaller, say, uh, percent of the population working professional jobs, which have been you know, far less hit by the pandemic than frontline workers like restaurant workers. Those states, you see much deeper impact. So Nevada, for example, Las Vegas was hit quite hard by the pandemic and the unemployment rate was much higher than in other states. So in, in Nevada, you saw much higher rears. And on top of that, you didn't have a statewide moratorium. So some utilities on their own said, look, if you call us, you've lost your job, we'll put you on a moratorium until you get a job or, or the pandemic ends. It's a little bit fuzzy exactly when uh, those things change. Other utilities took a totally different approach and their position was, you have a bill, we expect you to be paid. So I think what we saw in the United States and probably in, in other countries as well, utilities have a certain mindset. You know, they're not social service organizations. And what they've all learned over time is that if you threaten shut off, people will pay. They'll stop doing other things. They won't pay for food. They won't pay for medicine. They'll cut back in order to pay that bill. They'll borrow from a relative. By and large, most people either find the money or they get reconnected in a few days. It's a rather harsh system, but that's, in a sense, worked. That's very interesting, you know, that they will cut back in food and everything else, but to keep electricity on. But of course, I mean, it makes sense. You don't want to be living in the dark. You know, so, so in a sense, we used to say, you know, what do families do to pay their energy bills? They will cut back on food. They'll cut back on medicine. They'll cut back on buying clothing, all of those kinds of things. But if you think about it another way, by having the threat of shutoff, the utility goes to the front of the line. So families that are struggling to pay their energy bills are struggling to pay all of their bills. Who gets paid first? Well, if, the, if one bill says, look, we can put you back in the Stone Ages here, we can take away your power, you'll find every which way to pay them. There was a study done a number of years ago in Massachusetts. It was done by um, uh, one of the children's hospitals. They studied young children in Boston. And the, the premise was that during the winter, they thought that young children in poor neighborhoods would get less exercise and would gain weight. Seemed plausible. What they found was that many children lost weight. It was puzzling. Like, why did that happen? So they went to some of the families and said, well, 
why why did this happen? Why did the children lose weight? Well, the oil dealer would come and wouldn't deliver oil unless they were paid. What they found was that some of the families were just cutting back on food, and they felt this was like a developing country where you have to wait for the harvest to come in. They were very surprised that things were that bad in Boston. You know, a highly developed city, very upper income, lots of resources, and yet still you saw families struggling this way. And so I think what has happened is that the utilities are using a method that is quite cruel, but they do go to the front of the line in terms of getting payment. As a pre-pandemic strategy, it worked in a sense because it was a limited number of families. and We usually had enough energy assistance funds to help those families in crisis. During the pandemic, it's changed because the number of people behind are so much greater. So you can't threaten 10% of your rate base with shutoff. It just won't work. It's too many people. And so what we found during the last few months was that we need a different way of addressing this. And yet we still have utilities who are threatening shutoff with the old model. And I'll say to them, look, that worked fine if 1% or 2% of your rate base was behind. It doesn't work if 10% of your rate base is behind. So, Mark, in terms of the size of the debt relative to the revenues of the corporations, is there some range that you can give us that gives us an idea of, you gave us an absolute number, but how important is this to a particular utility? There are so many of them. The answer is that it depends. For the small municipally owned utilities that are, are relatively small, some of them have three or four people. They serve a few thousand households. I've seen numbers suggesting that can be as high as 8 to 10% of their total revenue. And also, they don't have a lot of industrial accounts. They tend to be primarily residential. All right. So, and, and what we've been talking about mostly is household debt. But you also said that you think that small business debt, which you also looked at somewhat, is showing a similar trend. And the people that are working in service sectors and are, and are unemployed, right? So how big are the businesses when you say small businesses? Well, you look across the country, I think maybe this gets more to the point of what's been the impact on utilities. It varies greatly by the state's economy. So states that are doing better, we are seeing a lower rate of increase. And states have been hit harder, we're seeing a higher rate of increase. Also, it varies by the number of households. That reflects again. So in terms of dollars, California, for example, the total amount in debt increased by 172%, about $422 million. Goodness. 172%. Like $422 to $1.2 billion, where the average rate of increase was about 88% during during pre-pandemic to current times. So we'll see numbers that vary considerably. New York, for example, increased by 67%. So these are significant numbers, and they add up to the billions of dollars. And how do you get those numbers paid? The number of households in debt, however, was not as significant an increase. It was about 42%. But what that reflects is that many low-income families are behind in general. It's always tough for them to pay the utility bills. It's the amount they owe. So when we looked at patterns uh, across states, what happened was the number of families by the middle of the pandemic had stopped increasing. The amount they owed kept increasing. So there's a group of people that lost their jobs early on. They stayed unemployed. And the amount they owed kept growing. Other families became reemployed or they were able to get the additional unemployment funds. It was a very mixed picture across the country. But the bottom line is that the numbers of households in arrears, we believe, total close to 30 million now, which is a very large number. 
one thing I wanted to uh, move on to now is about information and transparency regarding the the financial condition of the utilities. And, you know, you cited a lot of debt numbers. So I'm just wondering, is it very easy to get all of this information? Are there requirements that apply to all utilities, public and private, and to all states, regulations that require them to, to be transparent about their accounts and in a timely manner? It depends. It depends. Again, it's 50 states, each with their own set of rules. California, for example, requires that the numbers be reported periodically and in a transparent way so you can understand the extent of the problem and it's publicly available. Illinois requires the numbers be reported down to the zip code level so you can understand trends within the state. It's very significant because it helps you understand who's not paying their bills and what the problems are and then how to, how to target assistance. Other states, especially those in the South, don't require any reporting at all about utility rearages for a couple of reasons. One, if you don't know the extent of the problem, you don't have to do anything about it. You know, not to be cynical, but that really is part of it. Transparency is a tricky question here. So you're um, a utility in uh, a Southern state, or any state for that matter. You have a set of rules you have to follow before you set somebody off. You follow all those rules, and then the person doesn't pay Maybe they leave, they move, they, you can't find them. That's bad debt. You can recover that in the rate base provided you follow those rules. So that's when you report it to the Public Service Commission. When your next rate case comes up, you say, well, we had $5 million of bad debt. We weren't able to collect it. We want to raise rates to collect that $5 million. But you don't have to report it other than then. Other state commissions that are much more engaged in this question, for example, Massachusetts, they have very strong reporting requirements. And the commissions use that to set state benefit programs for low-income families. So they're very proactive. California is very proactive. Other states are less proactive. Right. But these rules may apply to public utilities or also private ones. I mean, private utilities, if they're borrowing on private capital markets, I mean, they need to be transparent about their accounts. So creditors will know in any case. Not that straightforward a question here. So you're a utility and you have $20 million in 90-day-plus debt from residential customers. You know that if you follow the rules, you can probably recapture most of that in the next rate hearing or as part of your balancing accounts. So you might view it as, yes, it's bad debt at one level. At another level, it's collectible. It's going to be re recovered. So during your financial reporting, you don't report as bad debt per se, it's a recoverable debt. That's because you know that the regulator will allow you to recover it. So there are no utilities that are continually loss-making. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And that's in terms of the residential debt because they're required to serve. They have to, Someone comes to sign up, you have to provide electric or gas service to that family, and you also have to follow a lot of procedures before you shut them off. So you can end up having a debt for several months. You're following the rules. I mean, the commission cannot require a company to lose money indefinitely. Yes, we're going to go later on in the podcast to how we should think about paying back all of this, uh, this debt that has come up. You've just mentioned one way, which is increasing the price, you know. But what happens if you're in a town where, you know, if you increase the price, that's going to be hard for the consumers because they can't afford that increased price. 
What then? Well, exactly. So say your utility has a high percentage of low-income families. You can't raise rates enough to provide discounts to low-income families without raising the rates for non-low-income to unsustainable levels. And you see that, for example, with Entergy. It's a utility that covers Arkansas, parts of Texas, and Louisiana. Very high percentage of low-income families there. They're limiting what they can do from their rate base to support the low-income population. And that's where federal funding comes in. At the end of the day, the federal government backstops a lot of these programs, in a sense, by providing a national program to provide supplemental funding for low-income families. No, no matter who owns the utility, of course, whether it be private. No matter who owns it. Right. Mm-hmm. But so this is part of the problem now, that there's been a buildup of arrears, there's debt, and you need to recover it with an increase in tariffs, um, either temporary or permanent or however you do it. But then what about all the maintenance and new investment that that may be needed? There's talk of a lot of green investments happening. And there's talk everywhere of how very little maintenance is done in many um, infrastructure areas. So how will all that be financed when you've got all this debt to deal with as well? It's a very good question to ask what happens if utilities can't recover this debt. They'll have to cut back. They'll have to cut back on greening the system. They'll have to come back on other investments because there's a limit to how high they can raise rates. They'll also put lots and lots of people into repayment plans that they might not be able to, to pay back. So the situation that starts getting set up is that it becomes a hindrance to recovery. If the, if the concern is how do we recover from the pandemic-related recession, we have to deal with these debts. We have to get them paid off so the utilities can thrive and prosper and also begin to invest in the related green goals of the United States. Now, one question I wanted to ask is, when we look forward about all the options for restructuring, so we mentioned raising rates. And I was just wondering, you know, there's been some thinking about, is it the consumers who couldn't pay, who should be the ones that are going to pay back and see an increase in rates? Or should the rates be spread more evenly amongst all rate pairs? Or should, in general, taxpayers pay? What are the different options and what are the pros and cons of each of these? And do the consumers actually expect to pay back their debt? Because the government has, you know, given them, um, has has said, it it is the government that said, you've got a moratorium on this. It's a very good question. Um, We believe that there are some consumers who are on moratorium that don't believe it's a debt. They haven't had to pay it for a year and they think it's not real. It sounds hard to believe, but I think that is one problem that there are people that don't understand it's a bill that has to be paid. The traditional method that's been used in the United States has been to put a family on a payment plan and stretch it out over a number of years. So it's the same family that hasn't paid has to repay. It's not spread broadly over all taxpayers. Well, there are a number of ways that it's done. In California, for example, family falls behind in their bill. They're put on a repayment plan, but it's a forgivable repayment plan. As long as the family pays their current bill, the amount of debt is reduced by, I think, one-twelfth every month. And this is for low-income consumers only? For low-income families. In Connecticut, there's some similar programs for debt forgiveness. That's what we call it. That's the label. So in a state that uses the rate base, they'll say, look, the family has fallen that far behind. It might never be practical to collect. The family has a low income. 
they won't be able to pay this back. It's just one more bill they have that they'll be behind on. So let's find a way to forgive the debt, provided they stay current on the bills as they come in. That's a model that's worked relatively well. Other states, families are put on payment plans. And also the issue is how long you go before you start collecting. So before the pandemic, 90 days was about it. Unless there was a winter moratorium, maybe you'd go 120 days, but not much more than that. Now we have some families who are a year behind. So the models that we have in place work well for a low-income family if they're a few months behind, not as well if you're a year behind, because you realize there's no way you could collect that much money from that family. So what the utilities are facing, especially the ones that have been under these state-mandated moratoriums, are debts that they know can't be paid back from the families and can't be easily spread across the rest of their rate base. And so the challenge became, who pays? And not surprisingly, the focus became the federal government. With the different stimulus bills that were out there, the question was, well, what can the federal government pay of these amounts? And there was a lot of tension over that because it was not just utility bills. Families were behind on rent bills. There was a federal moratorium on rent uh, evictions. Now, do you think that there should be different ways of handling consumer and business arrears? There are different ways of handling it. For businesses, many have had entered into um, personal guarantees. So they're liable for that debt, even if the business goes under. For residential debt, there's no personal guarantee. There's a whole different approach. So what does that mean when there's a personal guarantee? You mean by these small businesses, right? Essentially, it's guaranteed um, by their other assets, by their house, by their bank accounts. For small businesses, uh, mom and pop, as we call them, uh, three people, businesses, four people, four employees, they went under because of the pandemic. What we're learning is that many of them had signed personal guarantees. So the question for the utility is, do they go after these families for collection? That the jury is still out. Probably in a lot of cases, they won't. They don't want to force a family to sell their house. They don't want to impoverish a family. But at the end of the day, They'll also be up to the public service commissions because if they don't do that, it comes out of the rate base again. So you're back to this very difficult situation of a rate base structure that's based on a pre-pandemic world that worked reasonably well. There never been this many uh, small businesses that went bankrupt, those kinds of things. And so it puts the utility in in a different position than they used to being in. And that's why the federal government had to step in because utilities aren't debt collectors, not in a major way. They're not here to do long-term payment plans with residential customers. They're not here to provide free energy families. And so how do they operate? And so that's been the issue the last four or five months on Capitol Hill. What will be covered? What will be paid back? Will small business debt be covered? That became a question for a number of months because the same concern. We don't want to push lots of small businesses out of debt. So Congress did this uh, paycheck protection program they did for small businesses uh, largely writ small businesses. And that was allowed to cover utility bills as well. And that's forgiven, provided you meet certain criteria. So that was an indirect way of paying utility bills for small businesses. But those amounts are certainly far less than they've been experiencing. So that's the other concern they've had is they're carrying a lot more debt than they used to. And blanket moratoriums have the problem of they keep building up. And so at the end of the process, instead of only three months or six months, You might owe a year, could owe 14 months of debt in some states. And that might be difficult to pay back. 
So then the utility has to offer a payment plan. You can see how this becomes a multi-year process. So where the federal government stepped in is to say, essentially, we'll help pay off these bills so the, so the country can restart their economy. Okay. So this is a very important point you just made. They want to do that. So they want to clear arrears. You know, in many of our um, client countries, I mean, in, in many countries around the world, the pandemic is still playing out. So I can just see this problem of debt to and arrears to um, electric utilities. If you start to think about the percent of the population that's low income, both the United States and other countries, and even if it's 20% or 25%, have that large portion of your rate base behind or in a potential shutoff situation, it becomes a public health crisis. It's more than just access to electricity. It's a public health situation. People have electric devices that are related to their health. People have to study. They have to have lights on. They have to have refrigeration. All of these things, if you lose access to that, it could create a public health crisis. So the utilities are put in this position of being part of the public health system now. I mean, they've always been part of it. In and education system. You just said they can't study. Yes. So if you add all that together, what is the utility supposed to do? What do they do about these bad debts? and how they cover them. So one solution is to make the utility take care of it. You make them raise rates, indirectly raising taxes, essentially a tax on non-low income. That can work up to a point, assuming they have a diversified rate base. So some utilities in the United States, low income represents 10% of their rate base. They have a diversified group of, of corporations. So they can manage that if they had to. Other utility systems have a much higher rate of low income families and a less diversified economic base, primarily of smaller businesses, they're less able to handle this debt without raising rates to a level that would harm the economy of their region. So again, you're back to the federal government has to step in to try to address this, and that's what they've been doing. Now, the U.S. is a wealthy country, so a poorer country couldn't do this. I mean, you're providing so much money that you're, we think it's possible the amount of money provided by the federal government to pay off residential bad debt plus outstanding rent bills might be more than the bills actually are because the databases we have are at best soft. You know, we have different numbers. Some states, the data seems pretty reasonable. Some states, the data seems at best estimates. But when you put it all together, it's possible that the three stimulus bills that Congress passed will provide enough money for now. But we really won't know that till the programs roll out. Okay, and you know, you did you did mention some important points about you know how it's going to be larger corporations in some cases that will take that will bear the cost if low income families cannot and if the government does not, and but that again, as you said, you know, if corporations take the hit, then you're taxing your business, and right. if it's the smaller co- uh, companies that take the hit, well, you're taxing the smaller companies. So, I, I guess it's just you know, there's. Um, and, and good lessons for, for all of us. And I'm just wondering whether you had anything to add before we, before we end. I think the thing that I would add is that what we've learned in the United States, and I think might be relevant to other countries, is that in a regulated system, like our electric companies or our gas companies, they're set up with good intentions. And they're set up looking at historic patterns, where we see, you know, at most 10% of low-income families falling behind on their bills, represents maybe 2% of the rate base, and we've learned how to manage that. And I think that regulated companies are still bringing 
that same lens to the current situation. And my take on it is that the pandemic has changed all of that. The numbers of people who are low income has greatly expanded. The number of people unemployed has expanded. And that we do need a new model. That the model that we've had of, if you don't pay your bill, we shut you off and cause you significant harm for a week or so, doesn't work that well when you have large numbers of people who are behind. I would imagine in developing countries, it'll be the same thing. You can't have large neighborhoods be impoverished by these bills. And that might be painful to deal with by saying, look, we have to have either raise rates on all other sectors of the rate base or provide straight cash from state governments. If we don't do that, then the neighborhoods that are disproportionately low income will have an even greater burden to recover. And so I think that at the end of the day, we're looking at a situation that is truly different. This is not at all like anything we've ever dealt with. And we need solutions that rise to the occasion. And solutions that don't worsen inequalities as well. Yes. Thank you very much, Mark. It was a pleasure having you here today. Thank you. Well, listeners, let's see what we learned today. Firstly, the number of non-paying customers to electric utilities rose sharply during the pandemic. Regions with worse economic outcomes, with a larger share of poorer customers, or industries that suffered more from the lockdowns saw larger increases. Secondly, there are utilities for which the financial situation has deteriorated in an unprecedented manner and some public support will be needed to recover. Thirdly, a number of solutions are possible depending on the magnitude of the problem and the prospects for recovery. For example, allowing customers to pay back their debt over time or raising rates on all customers to cover the losses, or even by raising money from the general fiscal coffers. Thank you, and bye for now. You can find more information about the podcast on worldbank.org forward slash tell me how. If you've got questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on all popular podcasting platforms. This episode was recorded in August 2021. Don't forget to subscribe and thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.